from the twisted realm of science and the darkest pits of reason comes chilling tales of godlessness. Bear witness to the unfathomable terror that is... The Good Atheist. Welcome to the Good Atheist Podcast. My name is Jacob Fortan. Today, I have a very special guest, a friend of the show that I interviewed back in 2014. Um, she's the former director of the Clergy Project. She just recently wrote a book that we're going to be talking about called From uh, Apostle to Apostate. My guest, thank you for joining me, Catherine Dunphy. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Sorry, I just lost my voice there for a second. I, maybe I shouldn't have had that extra cup of coffee. Yeah, well, did you put a lot of cream in that thing? A little bit too much. Uh, that's yeah. a rookie mistake. All right, so rookie mistake number one is before you do a show, you put anything with milk in it. What are you doing? Your vocal pipes, that's an instrument. I, know, I should know that because I did a lot of singing in my undergrad, and um, so I should know that. But mm -hmm. anyway, I my love of coffee oh, it, it has clouded my vision. So, <laughs> And your throat, apparently. And my throat. Mm -hmm. yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you've been up to since we talked. Because here's, the last time we talked, we were just basically covering the fact that you had just started, uh, you know, something called Rational Doubt. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were kind of uh, looking for something to do, if I recall. Like, there were still plans that were all up in the air. Um, well, I sort of. I, I'm still working with uh, Linda on Rational Doubt. Um, and as you said, I published a book in the last, uh, last little while. And so my focus recently has been actually recording audio, um, the audio book. Oh, yes. Um, of, of, from apostle to apostate. So yeah, it's, um, it's been kind of busy and, uh, you know, I have a kid, so, um, he takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> what can uh, I say? A child. Yeah. Ah, yes. How old is this, uh, this little uh, creature? He's six. Ah, so. oh, I see. Now they are cognizant and they have opinions and definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, yeah. now you now it's not easy to trick him anymore. No, it's not. He's very skeptical, um, and I frequently get eye rolls and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a is a it's definitely um, a filling up my time just trying to keep him entertained I can't even believe it um and aside from that there's the writing and I'm starting research for a new book which I can really put all my effort into um after I finish the audio recording uh, from apostle to apostate so well let's, let's so, yeah let's talk about your first uh this this one book that that you're working on in terms of the audio uh book now from apostle to apostate so from I think that from the cover, it might it might not be entirely clear what it is because it it I thought at first it was going to be kind of like a little mini biography, if you will, um, mm -hmm. or or even like a tro a, tr a troll down someone's life, if you will. But it was much more uh, a kind of case study, if you mm -hmm. will, about the stuff that you had done with the clergy project. So it it seems like it's more it, it almost almost feels like a manual. For how multiple people uh, went out of it. So you, you kind of took the approach of, of, of saying, well, listen, here's the ride. You, like, you probably had even more data than, than <laughs> like yes. you probably had so much that it was 
probably ridiculous. So you, you I, I'm guessing you had to make the decision of what can I put in here that will what reach out the most people, or what were you trying to achieve with it? Well, the book I had to balance the book um, between two worlds. One world was me telling my story, and there's lots of my story in this book. You know how I lost my faith, what my religious upbringing was like, what, um, you know, major, major events that occurred in my life that I find to be formative of who I am now. So I had to tell that story, but I also had to tell the story of the founding of the clergy project, how it came about, because there's lots of misinformation out there and people just make assumptions. So it's kind of the definitive, here's how the project happened. This is what, pardon me, the project um, has been doing. And here's an idea of what the membership are like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was a ton of research and in lots of interviews and lots of discussion. So it was, it was kind of, well, how do we, how do we put it into a neat package that's readable? That's, um, you know, to the point, and that's not too laborious for readers. And so that's what ended up happening. I mean, I could have told a lot more stories about myself, but I wanted to balance it because I'm, I'm just one member of the project, but there are lots of similarities. And I do say that throughout the book and I, and I talk about key themes, right? I, you know, I talk about the influence of studying theology on members of the project, including myself and what that has to do with the deconstruction of faith. And I talk about other social movements that have impacted people's uh, perspectives, members of the project's perspectives on, on what they believe, like feminism and the gay rights movement. Um, so, so yeah, there there are a lot of different eggs in this basket. <laughs> well, you did a balancing act, and now let me let me let me tell you what parts that I wanted to see way more. And I'm and, and maybe really what happened is because you you were trying this balancing act so much that you ignored the fact that really your story is much more interesting and then then you give it credit for it. And I think that's really where part of the problem is because let me let me let's rewind the tape here. And I think that the way that it should kind of have started, you open up that sucker and, you know, you, you, you in your brain, you almost hear the, you know, like that song, the, the only boy that could ever reach me was the son of a preacher, man. You know what I mean? I, <laughs> yes. I, I, I want to feel your life because in a sense, and you talked about this, I believe, on the last podcast, that mm -hmm. there was a lot of you in the religion. And I feel like to some degree, even when we talk about it, we, we kind of ignore those emotional parts that we kind of, let go really mm -hmm. um but it, i think that we actually have to kind of attach ourselves a little bit to that in order to be able to drag an audience that might otherwise be like no i don't want to listen to you rational arguments no you yeah. know and like I, and and there's so much of there there's so many little stories i'm like why isn't there more like when you were talking about when you alluded to the social aspects of like the nunneries and like the little I don't know, like the, 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 the infighting or what all the stuff mm -hmm. that you saw that seemed petty to you. But I wanted to hear more of those stories. Like, what seemed right. petty? I want some Downton Abbey shit on that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you got to hit it hard with some characters and whatever. Because at yeah. the end of the day, you know, this stories are what really gets to people. And there's a really good story there. And that's why I want you on the show. I wanted to press you and say, you're not done. Make a movie or something. I want more... <laughs> Dunphy and, and and maybe less academic part because you know what we're all a little bit academic too much you know sometimes yeah. well 
maybe that's why I want to write a second book <laughs> is because I want to tell more of that story. Um, I want to tell more of, um, of, of what that process is like and just how complicated things can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how much real life actually goes on within religion. And I think that people in religion and outside of religion don't get that, you know, real stuff happens. Like people do real things. They have relationships, even if they're not supposed to. They are not nice, even though you expect them to be. They are unkind, even though they say they're they're not. They are right. So, so there are there are a lot of different dynamics. I almost had too much information uh, writing this book. I was like almost like a an avalanche of emotional stories that kind of tumbled out of me, and that I had to restrain myself from from telling so yeah so it's a restrained book um and the next one won't be so restrained um, See, that's, that makes me very happy because yeah. if that wasn't your book your, your second book project i was planning on using this show as a pressure tactic in order to, be able to make <laughs> that happen i am not above doing that now with that said i mean uh, I, I think that it touches upon, I, I, I think we had a discussion uh, about this as well before, is mm-hmm. that we needed to find ways to actually communicate with people that are not responsive to the kinds of messages that we've used in the past. And, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's like just a fool who thinks, oh, well, all the arguments are won. And now I can just retire. And you realize, well, it was never really about the arguments to begin with. The argument was one when Epicurus laid that shit down and mm-hmm. it was done, you know, and that yeah. was like 2000 some odd years ago. Yes. So, yeah. uh, you, you know, the, we're not we're, we, we actually think that we're just brand new at this stuff. Just like mm-hmm. everybody always thinks that they invented everything. Yeah, we are particularly obnoxious about that, mm-hmm. um, I would say. I think that the thing that gets lost is how deeply invested individuals become in um, the religious narrative and that 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 is the thing that has yet to be overcome because it just it provides I don't know a way to plug into meaning um, a a way to plug into value system Um, and then the more you're in it the more you need it and the more that you know, it, you feel the benefit of it. So yeah, it, it it's much more complicated than you know. You need just a really good argument for why not, right? Um, it has to do with what the needs and the wants of the individual. Um, and so yeah, it's I I think well, I, I wanted to be able to explain that, and I feel like I in some ways I did. Uh, you know, I if you read Richard's forward. In the book, he talks about how he had a better has a better understanding of just how difficult that process is uh, now since since he read the book. And so I think, um, yeah, like it's overly complicated and it gets overly complicated by the individual who's in the process of cultivating that relationship with this religious belief well maybe a, a kind of approach to getting people off the sort of uh, the, the the crack of religion if you will is that you're, you're trying to think what is the perfect recipe in order to get a person to do it and, and we'll use food as an example because food has you know such complexity that it's difficult for you to say well what is the one recipe that i'm going to get that almost everybody is going to like and and the truth is i mean you know, I think that what you have to do is you. you the, the, I, I think there really is a, a perfect formula. You just haven't tapped into it. I think mm-hmm. that it involves a, a large dash of hypocrisy, 
which is what we've kind of been focusing on majorly because it is a very effective tool to get change people's mind. You show something that is hypocritical, they're like, what the hell? Sure, they'll question it. But like you said before, if they're really emotionally invested, there's going to be a strong incentive for them to ignore that, create cognitive dissonance, and we're familiar with that behavior. So the mm-hmm. other thing needs to be like we we need to be able to find some way to to I guess create a, an, an emotional connection that says, well, you know, all these things that you think that are tied up in this religion, you you know, exist beyond mm-hmm. uh, that that religious framework, and and it's almost it almost feels like a shame because you can't really convince them that once they take over that veil, they might even feel a little bit more, uh, you know, in awe, you know, like saying like, listen, the recipe's got a secret ingredient. (laughs) (laughs) You really want to try it, you know, and now that's, that's, we need to find a way to make it enticing now, finally, because we're, we're, we're fearsome to them. We, 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 all we do is we, we give them the opportunity to have their world shaken up and destroyed and, and, you know, what else is Mm -hmm. left? And then basically you're saying, well, you're going to feel better about your, you know, schema. Really. Right. It, it's like saying to a, a child, you know, um, it's time for your your needle and you're going to, you know, it won't be you won't like it, but it, it's good for you. Um, <clears throat> kids don't believe you when you say that to them. And, and you know, I don't think that religious people um, really get it either. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and I, I, in some ways I totally agree. It would be, you know, I, I, but in other ways I'm, I wish that religion could just become this benign thing, right? That, that, uh, people could still believe whatever they believe, but it doesn't have any traction, you know, in the, the marketplace of ideas. Um, and if someone has those beliefs, you don't have to belittle them because they're completely and utterly irrelevant to everyone else's, you know, life. I know that that's not a reality right now, um, pretty much anywhere. Um, I would say it's kind of a reality in Canada, except for certain things like the separate school board in Ontario. Um, but for places like in the United States or in Islamic countries, for sure, that that doesn't exist at all. But I would hope that at some point it could get there. And then, you know, that would be the first, you know, rung on the ladder for religion to just become completely and utterly, um, you know, uh, unnecessary. But I feel I feel we're taking the attitude of like saying, okay, religion is a poison. So what we're going to do is we're going to dilute the shit out of it. Yes. And therefore, it's not going to kill us. And my my answer to that is, it's still poison, okay? Yeah. The, the but... biggest poison of all, the largest one that just kind of overwhelms everything, uh-huh. is is really the monotheistic aspect of it. Because, yes. look, we could have what you wanted if it was some fucking polytheism like back in the day. And indeed, we did have atheism and everything was mm-hmm. fine, except for somebody realized that, wow, you know, if I consolidate power and if I have this one thing that says... God believes in whatever it is that I do, and if you don't, then there's serious consequences to you, Mm -hmm. then, no, it doesn't matter how much you dilute the poison, it's ricin. It just fucking takes a small amount, and then all of a sudden, you're dead. It doesn't matter what you take, you're dead. It'd be great, again, like you said, if the whole world was super uh, civilized, but we always take one step forward and then two fucking steps back. Yeah, I know. But I think in some ways that's the nature uh, of human beings. I mean, I, I think that um, 
we're slow to learn. Um, we, re we really are. Um, and uh, especially when we are emotionally invested in something. So I just, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not a fan of religion. And even though they're, you know, um, I'm a cr critic of it. I just, I, I don't want to spend my whole life, I guess, criticizing religion. Because I think that there are other things that would be more important that I could do. Um, and, I, <laughs> well, and, and I think that, on that one. you're, you're yeah. not, you're don't not make this lifelong, don't make this lifelong. Um, oh. but you know what, here's, what's going to happen. You're just going to do this thing where you're going to be like, oh, well, I've devoted some time. I'm going to do something different. And then you it's going to be an accumulated thing where you're just going to get more and more pissed off. And then you have no choice. <laughs> I mean, like you want to live in a world that obeys some kind of logical, rational rules that doesn't yeah. impose itself on you. But that is just not the reality. The reality is that the people who are religious, they think to themselves, I need power because Jesus wants me to have power. Yeah. And if I can have that power, I can make that whole world better. And every time we think that, oh, everything's gotten better, mm -hmm. you just got complacent. You forgot that your enemies were real, that they existed, that they thought oh. that you were the fucking devil and they would I do know, everything I in know. their power to fucking bring you down. That's the, that's the, what really I understand sucks. that. Like, I, I, I get where you're going. You know, this is um, this is like a, a battle between of ideas and, you know, and nothing kind of sets my teeth on edge more than, you know, seeing or reading something that, you know, the church has said or done, like, you know, the Vatican saying that bishops don't have to report sex abuse scandals. Don't use contraception with the Zika don't use, virus. <laughs> don't use contraception, you know, no bad abortion. And, you know, women, please stop talking about ordination or else we're going to excommunicate you. You know, like there's lots of negative stuff that goes on. And I, yeah, no, I don't, I do not um, appreciate it. And I will critique it like, you know, um, at, like at every opportunity. Canadian. Like, like a, a good Canadian, as politely will, as possible. I will say, um, hey, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. I'm sorry to tell you this. I'm please. I apologize, but you suck. Uh, <laughs> have a great day. Yeah, that is uh, but I think that you, you know, for me, I, I think I will continue to do that. Um, it, it's kind of part of who I am. I read something, see something. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something about it. Like the Pope's new book. I wrote a review of that. Um, just a little over a week ago for Rational Doubt. Um, and and in it, I, I it was a really horrible book to read, by the way. Well, what was it about? Um, the Name of God is Mercy is what it was called. And it was really not a book so much as a glorified uh, interview that he gave to this Italian journalist whose name I cannot remember and don't want to pr mispronounce. Um, and it also included a papal bull about why this is the year of mercy. Um, and basically the you know, the Vatican decides, hey, we're going to have a whole year and it's going to be about Mary or it's going to be about mercy or it's going to be about, you know, dancing. Uh, sacrifice. <laughs> it's never about dancing. Never, ever about dancing. Can't be about dancing. Yeah. They've and danced. They, and then they just list off all of the scriptural references for why, you know, God has told them that this is the year of mercy. So basically it was a nauseatingly repetitive book where Francis just kept talking about mercy and, and God is mercy and you find mercy in the confessional. Um, and that, you know, yeah, but he said, God is mercy, not us. <laughs> 
you don't no, come looking yeah. for mercy from uh, from us, but you go you go to God for that shit. Yeah, you go to you go to the confessional, and he talked about his confessors. The most interesting part of the whole book is when he described seeing the body of his his a priest confessor that that he went to that he thought was very good and made him feel good about his relationship with God, and he he had always noticed this priest's rosary, and Francis actually stole the the cross off the rosary off the body and i'm like hmm that's that's a really interesting story you know you klepto you <laughs> you're fucked up yo <laughs> so, what's so, that yeah. what, what's that say about you dog <laughs> yeah exactly so so yeah it's uh, like i mean i'll always have there will always be a place for me to criticize the church or to critique the church um and i'm i will always be you know um prepare to you know to take a reasoned approach to to why we should think instead of just you know blindly go with what's been done before um but i think that you know there i think that living by example is a good thing too or doing good works is a really good thing as well that like that provides a really great example for other people. I mean, the Christians used to to um, say that you will be known by your works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, well, Except for the Calvinists, I guess. Yeah, except for the Calvinists. They don't really care. There, well, there's actually this Christian hymn that we used to sing in church. Um, they will know we are Christians by our love. Um, and so, you know, they, that's how, that was their way of marketing. Um, that was their way of uh, gaining converts. And I think in some ways, you know, that that's the one component (laughs) that maybe, um, atheism and humanism it has, but it needs to bolster that, you know, we are really good people and we really care about the world because we, this is the only life we have and, and we want to make it count and we want to make it good for as many people as possible. So let's make that happen. And that's where I think um, the shifting focus for me is. Um, because I can I can, I can, can critique with the church and religion with one hand, and I can give to charity and care about my fellow human beings with the other. So <laughs> there well, we go. Well, maybe, you know what? I, I, I don't recommend it, but really the phrase that we should have had from the very beginning was really YOLO, but it got taken by a bunch of young idiots that thought that that meant that you should do absolutely anything risky that you want, like mm-hmm. getting it completely backwards. I'm like, oh my God, when you're talking about YOLO, you only live once. Holy moly, you only live once. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah, been exactly. Careful. So, so yeah, let's pl- please don't, you know, jump off a building and think you're, you know, with, you know, some bags taped to your arms and think you're going to glide like a squirrel, a flying squirrel, right? So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, you only live once is more about about living in the now, but but being cognizant of the fact that you want the world to be a good place while you're here. You know, and if you have kids like me, you want the world to be a good place for them too, right? So that well, uh, we we're going to have a marketing problem though when we face the, the 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 challenge of putting up with the fact that the church has it both ways. One, like you said, they can they can try to market the word Christian to mean good. Oh, that's so Christian of you, even though really when you look at it, you're you're like you have this other disincentive. Oh, you don't believe you're going to burn in hell, but I'm yes. super swell and and happy for you for rejecting God. I'm like, 
that's a really tough marketing thing. You say that you're nice, uh, but you're really just fucking hypocrite. Well, I mean, they it it, it 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 they are hypocrites, but they turn it on. Like if you if you someone like Francis, right? When Bill Maher was like, "Oh my God, Francis is so awesome. See, he even thinks atheists could go to heaven." Yeah, if they repent and they accept God and they go back to the church, sure, an atheist can can go to heaven, um, right? If he presses so, up, up, down, left, right, you know, D-pad, whatever, secret code that the Vatican is yeah. only aware of. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, I mean, you can, with theology, you can say anything or make it, you know, make it mean anything that you want. or And then you can also change the goalposts and rip the rug out from underneath people and completely, you know, modify your meaning, which I think, you know, I don't. I think that in some ways people aren't accustomed to that. They are, and they're they're not, right? They're 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 used to things being, you know, it's either this or it's that. Which is it, right? And that's not how it works with the church or with theology. It depends on how they feel about it, right? They have to think about it. They have to discern. They have to pray. Somehow in that process, I guess God is whispering in their ear what the real answer is, you know? So. So, they have yeah. to let the justifications build inside of them. <laughs> yes, they do, right? They need to, they need to, they understand what they want, right? Like, take, for example, the women's ordination thing. John Paul II was really um, anti-feminist. And so when he wrote his encyclical and said, you know, here's the, on the vocation of women, um, women, here's your vocation. You can be a mother or you can be a nun, but whatever you are, you know, you're in this, nature tells you that you're in this subsidiary, uh, you know, sub secondary position. <laughs> you're never going to, you don't have the appendage necessary in order to rise above where, you, you know, your, your place in life. We wonder what um, that appendage is. We wonder right? what that is. Yes. So, so please stop. To no, no, sorry. So shut the fuck up. Yeah. Or we're going to excommunicate you. Um, and that's what's happened consistently. You know, women will write books um, about the ordination of, of women in the Catholic Church and they get called bitches and they get called, you know, cranks and they get told that they're going to be excommunicated um, or, you know, they get their books burned. That happens, too. Right. So if it's a Catholic press that publishes the book, then the book could you know be destroyed uh so yeah it's um in the john paul and the church don't want to don't want to move on that issue they 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 are old school they want women to be in their position and that in their place and the oligarchs are only males so so yeah it's um they'll whatever whatever workaround they have on it like they'll, they'll always go back to that which is why the, the church now won't even talk touch the issue and every time someone brings it up they, they have nothing to say but the same old jargon you know the same old same old so and there's no moving forward on that so yeah anyway i'll shut up about the church and women well it you know what i don't mind i mean i always like to hear the the kind of ridiculous things that the church feels like it needs to you know get involved but i, I the the crazy thing for me is really in canada we actually sometimes we really underestimate the power that uh, religious organizations have here. In yeah. particular, there are certain organizations, I, I don't quite know what they're called here in Canada, but in the U.S., 
They're called crisis pregnancy centers. There's mm -hmm. roughly nine to every one abortion clinic there. They masquerade as abortion clinics, but they're really just places that are just trying to get people to change their mind. And I mean, even on the way to Toronto, uh, for, I mean, from Toronto to Montreal, I was on the bus and there was this gigantic sign of a baby saying like, he could be a genius if only he was born. And you're like, um, wow, downtown Toronto, pro-life giant billboard. And like, it, like, it ain't no thing. And, and, and I mean, yeah. surprising. Uh I guess it is surprising, especially in Canada, where abortion is basically on demand. And if you need an abortion, then you go see your family doctor and they help you make arrangements, you know, and they tell you where to go, um, you know, what you need. And, and it's the American make it dream. Happen. It is. <laughs> they it's really the wish they had that. Like, come to Canada for your abortion, ladies. It's all yeah. good. It's all good. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised um, because even though... Um, the pro-lifers, as they like to call themselves, or the anti-choice people, um, <laughs> are are of the minority in Canada. They still are just so so persistent, but they can't really get any traction. I mean, even under Stephen Harper, who is like an arch social conservative, not just a you know a political conservative, um, they couldn't get any traction under him. I mean, minimal. I mean, there were some private member bills that went like nowhere. Um, but he's like, we're not opening this up for debate again. You know, this debate is dead. We're, we've moved on. Um, and I thought that for me, I was like, you know, listening to him say that, I think it was like two years ago, uh, I was really happy to hear that because I was worried that he'd want to open it up again because of his, you know, um, religious sentimentality. Um, but by and large, most Canadians are, you know, let women do what they want. It's their bodies, right? I'm not going to dictate to a woman that she can't have an abortion, um, which I'm sure most Americans would find incredibly refreshing just to think, wow, Parliament is not busy, you know, looking around someone's uterus. Nope. We have no interest in, do in doing that. Um, but yeah, like when it comes to, you know, a pro-life group or the Catholic Church or somebody, doing their protests at Queen's Park or posting their billboards along the Gardner, I would say, you know, let them do it. You know, if free speech, they can say whatever they want. But I think that Canadians already, they've moved past that discussion. They've moved past that debate and accept, you know, that abortion is a reality and that it's not their decision to make. Well, the, the, the thing that I find um, what, what really separates us from the American system is that actually American systems are surprisingly vulnerable to highly organized minority groups that can pressure yes. uh, and use public opinion to really try to sw to sway mass mass thought. And, and, yes. and around in Canada, we just don't allow that kind of you know hysteria to catch because mm -hmm. that I, I think that there there should actually be. Some I, I don't know how you would make laws against this, but there there must be some form of prohibition of saying, listen, this is the, there are propaganda laws. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree. Like you can, I mean, free speech is awesome. I love it. I think people in in Canada feel like we have free freedom of speech. We don't feel like we are living under a socialist uh, state that is oppressing our ability to think and to say what to say what we think um but i think in the united states it's 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 always this hot 
button issue that someone's going to come and take away their rights, that they're being distracted by this discussion of of certain rights over here, like guns, right? While other rights are actually clawed back and that people are unaware of this give take situation that's going on. Um, I mean, women are not uh, are not unaware of that. I would say women are very aware that their rights are being, you know, taken over. And it's by this this um, supposed return to, you know, uh, conservative social values. But I think it's, you know, it's it's just really ugly, you know, and 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 completely unnecessary. And it makes kind of a mockery of the democracy that is is the united states and i like i think about it, their options when it comes to this upcoming election from the gop and i'm like wow most of these guys are just wackos you know that would never get any traction in canada or anywhere else but yet they're the front runners for this official party like oh my goodness how depressing um i mean i thought stephen harper was bad but oh yeah, well, you know what? You and I have a very different word for that. You say depressing, I say terrifying. But that's yeah. only because I read a lot of history books. And you know, here's the here's the one thing that I think that kind of annoys me about uh, about the attitudes of most Americans is that one, you know, the thing that really made Germany the terrifying yeah. power that it was is its feeling of humiliation. Yeah. That's, I mean, Hitler's book was called My Struggle. Okay. Yes. It wasn't called my victory. His nope. strength was his weakness. And yes. unfortunately, when you are strong and you see yourself as weak, that's when you're fucking dangerous. And absolutely. And and if anybody would have asked you, what kind of a man was Hitler if you met him? Their answer would have been, he seems buffoonish to me, seems like a clown. Why would anyone take him seriously? And what he offered what he promised was a solution against what people were really afraid of, which were Bolsheviks, or I guess what later became communists. And yeah. as far as everyone was concerned, the lesser of two evils was better. And it yes. never is better. That's no, it's the fucking not. thing. And that is what really annoys me about Americans and how closely they play with that. Because the question is, if America was the bad guy, can the world stop it? Probably not. There you go. And I don't think that America really understands that it's a two fucking headed monster. Yeah, I don't think they get that either. Um, but yeah, no, it's it, it's interesting what you said about um, the fear of uh, communism um, because and the, the two headed monster thing. Um, I don't know if you've read Gerald Posner's book, uh, God's Bankers. Um, but in it, he talks about the position that the, the Vatican was in during um, leading up to World War Two. And how the Pope at the time, um, John the, the no, 20, John the 23rd, I think. Uh, no, nope, <clears throat> 23rd. Anyway, I have to check that. Um, <laughs> he uh, basically aligned himself with the fascists because of the fear of communism and the, you know, eradication of the Catholic Church at the hands of communists. Um, and John Paul II was an arch anti-communist i mean he was polish right so he was from a, a communist living under a communist regime so he did everything he could to to bolster um you know uh anti-communist sentiment which is you know probably why he became such a popular uh pope in the united states at that time with ronald reagan and the Cold War and all that, you know, sort of stuff going on back and forth. But he um, 
he really, you know, the, the church doesn't want communism. They don't want atheism. They want people to be, you know, happily living in some utopian land that doesn't exist where, you know, they have free reign to dictate people's social values and democracy, whatever that would look like, reigns. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, it like, it, I agree with you. Like it's, it's, it is terrifying. I look at Donald Trump and go, how could anyone think that he says anything that even resembles intelligence or I don't know the, hu- I, I, I well, don't, Don, Donald this- Trump, Donald Trump is much more closely, uh, linked to Mussolini than I'd say Hitler. Um, the yeah. problem is that Mussolini inspired Hitler. Yes, he did. Yeah, uh, and he inspired fascism. And and in a sense, like you know, when you look at Mussolini's fascism, uh, it wasn't anti-Semitic. In fact, it was strongly nationalist. And there are many yes. there are many Jewish fascists in Italy. It must surprise yes. people who don't fucking read history. But yeah, he and and Mussolini eventually sacrificed these poor suckers. Yes, he did. Yeah. Lines. So yeah. It, it gives you uh, you know an understanding of what is really important in these kind of power structures. But they, they these were cults that believed that violence was a, a positive thing. It looked upon old empires as like a you know a, a, in a positive light. And this is the kind of attitude that um, uh, you know bullies like this really kind of get off on their their yeah. smug attitude, their inability to work with anyone else. This is the kind of what it does is it creates a, a, a world stage and attitude, a series of, of responses to any action that mm-hmm. be outside anyone's control. And again, America doesn't really understand this. I mean, if anybody should be involved in their elections, it's the whole world. I mean, it, it seems to want to police it. And so why don't we get a fucking vote? I was thinking that the other day, actually, that, you know, really um, everyone should get a vote on who wins the American election. They should have some sort of, um, you know, international college that where people can register and they, you know, they can, they can pass a vote and it should be, it should count because it does matter to the rest of the world who ends up in the white house. Um, it has huge lasting impacts. I mean, look at Iraq, right? Look at Afghanistan. Um, that you know the, and their foreign the, the policies cons- affect our yeah. countries as well like we sent people over there we had mm-hmm. canadians that died for that mm-hmm. shit yeah. and, I'm, and i'm not a nationalistic person but i'm no, like well you're part of a tribe went. when you're part of a tribe at the very least the one thing is that tribe should try to make sure that they don't yeah. send you out to die for no fucking reason well the 401 is now the highway of heroes right because of the conflict in in iraq and afghanistan right so it it it, it their their actions spill over like it's not like they they're just one country and their actions just affect their citizens it affects the we are a global society we have always been such but um i don't think we've been very cognizant of it so i mean something like you know um the un i think should be playing a bigger role in policy development in every nation there should be consistency you know like there's labor market mobility within canada or within you know canada and the united states there should be policy mobility within all of the countries of the un so that you can't have a country like saudi arabia decide that it wants blasphemy laws that allow that allow the state to execute someone because they're an atheist that should just be you know a no-go Right? Well, Should you know what we need? Everybody there. needs some serious reform. We need to rethink the strategies. Who knew that a bunch yeah. of Enlightenment dudes didn't have all the motherfucking answers? 
who knew? Well, yeah, I mean, it's our learning curve. And that like, and that relates back to, you know, religion as well. You know, we're, we're in the muck of unlearning this paradigm that we that's existed, you know, since we started writing things down, we started acquiring uh, our uh, societies and trying to replicate them. So we have to kind of we have to unlearn the the bad parts and create something new, which I guess leads into the, you know, the whole good work thing. Okay, but let's okay, but I I want to, you know, shine a little bit of uh, light on the fact that I mean, we were talking about the Catholic Church, right, just Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And and despite all these other things, these harms that we talk about that are still very serious, the one thing that no one ever talks about, and these are even people that are insiders like you, is probably what I think is the the most serious crime that they are doing on a constant basis and which makes the world worse is that the Vatican and the Holy See is the biggest money launderer in the world. Yes, yes. By hundreds of billions, if not, I'm not even sure how much because they're not even required to tell how much their entire asset generating entity is worth and how much it holds and how much mm-hmm. it transfers. None of this has to ever be released to anyone. Yes, well, thank Mussolini for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it, that's true. I mean, uh, you, you really need to read God's Bankers if you haven't already. I think um, I have read it, actually. You have read it? Okay. I, I have read it, but because uh, well, I, I did a show a, a while ago on, um, on the Vatican Bank. It was, I think, oh, well, it was a year ago. Or mm-hmm. something, and because I, I was trying to find out less about the Vatican Bank, which is even just a tiny portion of the much larger entity that you mm-hmm. can't actually get any information yeah. on. Like no. I wanted to know if the if the world had to buy all of the assets of the Vatican, could it afford it? No. <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's the problem. It is the most. It is the wealthiest organization. It's wealthier than even any country on paper. And it's yeah. a primary responsibility, it's primary duty now in the world financial markets is to launder the trillions of dollars that need to be laundered. Yes. And you're just like, this is for real, this is happening. And you're like, regardless of the religion, whatever it's little fucking, th- th- this is peanut, you know, fucking change yeah. compared to what they're actually doing in terms of controlling financial markets. So how are we supposed to get this entity, this tentacle nightmare out of our fucking world? How, how is that supposed to happen? Well, good works. I mean, I'm not convinced, <laughs> you know, Catherine. No, it can't help happen with good good works. I mean, you know, I, I I wish I could give you like a really short, simple response to that, but I don't think that it is really a, a it wouldn't be a short, simple process. And then there's also, you know, outside influences that would be negatively impacted if something like the Vatican and its bank were utterly exposed and deconstructed. Um, oh, well, this, you, you know what? What is the social impact of actually organized crime no longer putting dirty money into real legitimate businesses? How much does unemployment go down yeah. if we were to just eliminate organized crime? We don't even know how to handle our social problems because... No. I, well, I would so- think... You know, I, I would think that one thing that would be really wonderful, it would decrease organized crime, would maybe potentially increase funds in the social coffers, would be something like, um, you know, uh, 
legalizing marijuana. Well, right? you, you mentioned the UN before. Well, that's who's kind of like mm-hmm. stepping on our toes in order for us to be able to legalize marijuana because of arrangements yeah. that we've made in international mm-hmm. law concerning a plant that's not only like pretty harmless, but actually my, my mom's on medical marijuana and there's one of the one of the side effects that it says is uh, it decreases uh, cell growth. Hmm. Um, This is a very, very uh, interesting kind of description for basically saying may stop cancer. No, but let's make this shit illegal and let's not take any revenue. And I mean, like just just for people to understand when prohibition for alcohol started Mm -hmm. in the United States, the the taxes alone from alcohol accounted for a third of the American government's revenue. Yeah. Now that's taxation. And when you make something illegal and then you're getting the criminals to not, not, they don't even pay you tax. It's a hundred percent profit. And you're like, how much money is that? That's enough money to run a country. That's what you give to organized crime. Now, the better question is perhaps we do know that, you know, maybe there are ways to dismantle it, but like Durkheim said, there is a social need for crime. It it fills a social order that society doesn't either wish to fulfill or doesn't know how to fulfill. So that that's our darkness that we're seeing there. Can we mm-hmm. get rid of our darkness? Well, I I don't know why we couldn't. I mean, I I like it. Obviously, there would always there would always be crime, right? There would always be um, the conflict, the crime person against person. But but so, so so-called societal crimes like the war on drugs, that sort of thing. I don't know why we can't, you know, allocate that type of ideological thinking to the history books. Like I don't I don't know why we can't because move it's, forward because, on that. like I said, it serves a social I, function. The social function it does, of but we created that that social the, function because mm-hmm. of. The, you know, because of police forces and and uh, the um, and prisons and all these other systems that we've put into place. But we could also deconstruct those systems and put it different systems in place. Like um, instead of, uh, you know, drug, you know, there could be more drug treatment. There could be more funding for understanding addiction. There could be more funding, uh, you know, more social programs to help. Uh, with families that are impacted by addiction. So yeah, so there are definitely things that could be done. It requires policy. It requires a change in perspective. It actually requires a lot of the things that would be needed in order for someone to decide that they don't want, they don't believe, you know, in God anymore. Like that, that definitely. Um, and there's one word that describes all of three of those things. Do you know what mm-hmm. that is? Propaganda. propaganda propaganda <laughs> what you're calling for is a propaganda revolution because really yeah. the propaganda that agrees with you is just information right <laughs> yes it is that's true it is all it is all propaganda is. um can i just stop for one second uh, fedex just pulled up in front of my house sure, and sure. going to be interrupted by my dog barking so no worries just, uh, just uh, don't worry about it
you still there? Yeah, of course. Sorry, I had to sign for it. Don't worry, don't worry. I, I usually edit these shows anyways. I figured you would be editing it. So, um, yeah, okay, so propaganda. <laughs> See, the, 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 what, what I'm saying, even in, in the kind of information, going back to your book, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, like you were saying, there's going to be more personal. Can I make a few suggestions? <laughs> uh, as long as you understand that I am absolutely free to disregard that. Of course, of course. <laughs> I'm only merely making suggestions. And this, this comes from me as, as a writer because I've been writing many more stories. And if I, if I can have a suggestion for how are you going to sort of like, you know, write it out, let me just sort of like remind you of the beauty of the three-act play. You've got three phases in your life that you could describe, mm -hmm. and if you can just take us from one moment magically to the next, um, you would be giving everybody the kind of atheist book that they've been asking for a long time. Because the truth is, ever mm -hmm. since you know, kind of letting go of God by um, Julia Sweeney, we really haven't had that strong uh, connection, uh, you know, emotional mm -hmm. connection kind of a book. Uh, mm -hmm. We're we're a little bit dry and academic in this scene, and we we tend to forget that um, not everybody likes that. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I agree completely. Um, that uh, you know, um, there that it does tend to be dry and academic sometimes. And I know that you know, in my book, I do spend a lot of time, you know, in dialogue, interviewing people, looking at statistics research, all that sort of stuff, um, talking about theology, you know, and I don't know, maybe some people would find the theology stuff interesting because it does relate specifically to my thought process, but it is academic. It is. I mean, any, any time you were, you know, you're, you're using, um, very specific language, uh, from particular, you know, profession then you know it can get kind of dry I, I do get that but I think you know I tell some pretty good stories in this book um the ones related to me you know the the story about the bishop um and the girls youth camp the story about you know talking to the my registrar about my lack of faith and that I didn't want to finish the program um my story about Sam Harris <laughs> I think those are good stories um, and I think it gives the reader like a peek inside this really complex deconstructive process. Um, and yeah, next book will definitely be more narrative. Well, um, I'm very excited for that yeah. because they're, like I said before, I mean, I didn't want to critique it, but I got no choice. You know, I can't, I got to be honest. My yeah. thing was I wanted something a little bit different, but it sounds to me like you're just about making that happen. So I just got to be patient mm -hmm. now. Just you, just, you need to give me a little bit of time yeah. to, to uh, get the next story uh, told oh. um, and finish up with, uh, with this. But I mean, like so many projects, so many projects. Mm -hmm. So and, and a child running around becoming cognizant. My goodness. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and growing and developing and, you know, just living your life, right? So, <laughs> no, no time um, but I, I want to ask you, I mean, I know you're the one doing the interview here. What was your favorite part of the book? Um, I think it was, um, what was it? 
you you were talking like I think I mentioned it before when you had meant when you were saying that when you were with the religious in the religious fold with everybody that you were suddenly stuck with the, all this drama, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. people talking behind each other's back, and you're just yeah. saying like, we these are supposed to be holy people, and mm-hmm. meanwhile there this is some pretty unholy behavior here, and it I guess it's kind of funny because. For me, like the part of the human experience is always being um, really disappointed from all of these things that you thought you built up in your life. You're like, this is going to be great. You know, like you had I'm sure you had expectations about mm-hmm. what you were going to you were going to see or how people were going to, to be. And then like to just watch them come crashing down for just yeah. like I'm. this is why, again, like I'm like, does it get juicy detail here? Like Downton Abbey style, you know, like I want some, you know. It's like gospel, yeah, no, no names, I, but I mean, I, I just want to know what's what kind of petty shit got to you. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's well, what I mean. How petty so, was it? Well, it was really petty. You'd have like individuals, um, you know. I'll give you here's a here's an example. I was, you know, working. This was during my field placement for my um, degree, and I was sent to this particular community that worked with adults with developmental disabilities. And I was, I was very upfront with them from the get go and said, you know, this is what I'm here for. Right. I understand you're giving me a salary and this is happening and that is happening, but my role and function is X, right. I'm here as a pastoral service and I'm not here as a caretaker, whereas that's what the other people there were there for. And I was of a similar age to all these other individuals. So they saw me more like a peer as opposed to a minister or as opposed to someone who's there to minister to them. And so, you know, um, they weren't very nice sometimes when I would try to intercede and do my job. I would be told, you know, I'm not interested in talking to you about this. You have nothing to really, you know, <laughs> to offer me because, well, you're a woman. <laughs> this is for a Catholic organization too. And, you know, you're in your 20s. Like, what the heck are you even doing here? And so so there would be that kind of conflict that would go on. And then there would also be the people would go out and they'd go to the bar and they get plastered and they come back and they would, you know, have fights and, you know, and disagreements. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? You're putting people, you know, people are in jeopardy. Or in my own experience, I have one individual who, uh, you know, um, was disappointed with the level of of, uh, of pastoring that I was giving. And, you know, she was very resentful of the fact that I didn't have to do any of the lifting or assistance with the actual with the actual residents. And, uh, you know, she was very rude about the fact that I was letting her down by just fulfilling a different role. So, yeah, so you get all sorts of like little ugly things like that or, you know, when I ran a refugee office for the Archdiocese of Halifax, you know, when I came into that organization, the refugee office was a shambles. It had previously been run by a nun who knew nothing about immigration and refugee process in Canada. There were fistfights between refugee claims <laughs> in the hallways. Oh, my God. Of, of the Archdiocese. It's like a fight police, club. <laughs> yeah. Police were called in. I come in, I overhaul the entire thing, I go over all of the the old files, I do attend the hearings, I, you know, do everything I need to do to get people into temporary and long-term housing and help with ESL. And then when I'm leaving, I'm told in my performance review that I did an adequate job. <laughs> Meanwhile, I saved their ass. <laughs> adequate. Know? 
Yeah, adequate. Oh, right, because I'm a woman. Mm. So, so yeah, so there's tons of little, you know, little stories like that. It basically is the entire fabric of my experience in the church. It was like the air I breathed was this continuously hostile environment because I was a woman and because I was wanting a leadership role in the church. So I that almost, I almost feel like, you know, you just gave me an idea for a story about... <laughs> about a guy trying to work up through some form of male nunnery in a matriarchal religion. And, uh, you know, just yeah. How, yeah. how much could you stand, boy? <laughs> how could, uh, really, how much could you stand? Because it just gets very tiring and taxing after a while, you know, being, you know, told they're there, even though you know more than the individual who is, you know, trying to... Um, you know, it's it's like being it's like being given pointers by someone who has less experience than you have or less knowledge than you have. I, I you believe know? this is actually probably one of the few rare instances where we can use mansplaining, and it actually yes. is pretty good uh, descriptor yeah. right there. Yeah, it religion is. is quite good at that. <laughs> well, it's the entire ethos of of the culture. It really is. It's just it's so embedded in what the religion is. Um, and what what I think most uh, well, all of the Abrahamic religions are. They are all they're you know patriarchal. They're male focused, male normative, and women are these secondary creatures that you know have this have a function. They don't have a role. They have a function. And I think that's very different um, because the idea of a role means that, you know, it's something that's thoughtful. It's something that can be expressive. But a function is just caught in nature, trapped in its its position and unchanging. Well, I mean, when you when you do read the Bible, there's I'm trying to remember which is the chapter in which the guy's wife the one who's the prostitute keeps on leaving and then cheating on him. And then he's writing about this. You're like, this is a man in pain. And he's writing about the future of women, really. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. like, great. That's that's fantastic. Because I would love the reverse. I would love a lovelorn woman to write all the rules of society for me. <laughs> yes, it would be very, I would think it would be very devastating to men everywhere, actually. Get well, yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, I, I did mention that I was writing a story about that. I, I thought it would be interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm currently working on one in which I, I flip the, the kind of narrative, making it at, uh, a sort of like a dystopic, matriarchal mm -hmm. uh, society. Only because I think it, it, you know, if you, if you, if you switch, if you switch the narrative, at least with people, they can kind of understand the, the, the other side. I wish that mm -hmm. perhaps for 24 hours. We could all switch gender just just for the day, live each other's lives, and we would all have greater understanding. We would have greater empathy. We would understand each we other's would. pains so much more. We would. We would definitely do that. It but it also takes someone with a, who's willing to want to understand. You know, um, I I wish it could happen, and you know, everybody would have a what was that Disney movie, Freaky Friday? Everyone could have a Freaky Friday, right? And yep. have have a different experience. Um, and it's unfortunately not possible, but the only way to really achieve that is try to cultivate it, right? To engage yourself, to talk to people that are different from you, to to try to understand their experience and to be open to that. And that, you know, it would be really wonderful if everybody could do that. It, I think the world would be like 
almost perfect if well, we, we could we, do that. We have we have developed a technology over the centuries and millennia that gives us a glimpse or an ability to do this partially. It's, these are called stories. Yes. And I mean, we dismiss it because we don't really think about it. And in today's world, I think that we undervalue writers so much, even though yes. we're, we're so reliant on them on a, on a fucking daily basis that it's mm -hmm. ridiculous. I mean, without writers, without people to actually put their thoughts out there, what are you doing all day but staring at a blank screen? Exactly. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely that um, narratives and stories, I mean, they are um, a way for us to understand ourselves and to understand one another and that we, we, we don't, we kind of take them for granted that we don't, we don't appreciate how much they fill our life up with. Uh, with joy or sadness or understanding or even just, you know, how you even think about yourself as a person, you know, as an individual um, and your role, your context, your experience, you know, um, we, 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 we tend to just be, it's like, it's like the air we breathe. We, we don't see it. And yet still it's around us constantly, you know, informing our experience. So, so yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, that's why I want to keep telling stories um, and uh, why I think that religion is probably going to be a part, at least, you know, to some degree of every story that I'm going to tell. I can't I can't uh, tear it out of me, even though I'd like to some days. <laughs> I know. I, I feel you. I feel you. I thought I, I thought I was done. But, you know, like Godfather, mm -hmm. they, they pull you back in mm -hmm. and, and they do this only because. You know, you can you be done with the, with these organizations that have unlimited power and and almost a seemingly unlimited influence. The the good news is kind of like the same world, like you know that we we think in today's world that all of these, you know, like let's say 80, 80 people control most of the world's wealth, but right, they control it. Mm -hmm. But what they people don't realize is that much of that control is entirely given. It's yes, not it's there's no gun to your head that is preventing you from going to the bank and taking all your fucking money out and for everybody to do that at the same time. And then those 86 people, they only got their dicks to hold. And I'm because I'm pretty sure they're mostly dudes. I, I would assume they are all dudes. <laughs> they pro probably probably. But, yeah. you know, you know what? They, the, they set the scene. They They wrote a whole bunch of stories in which they gave the dudes all the power. And then yes. they create in the narrative. It, it's it's sort of like the idea of, of paper towns. Are, are you familiar with what a paper town is? No. So it turns out that back in the old days when map makers used to make maps, this is a very laborious process, and you didn't want mm -hmm. anybody else to just kind of copy your work. So what they would do is they would hide fake towns <laughs> in these maps. And then eventually people would move to these towns and make the towns happen. Interesting. These hmm. are called paper tents. And in a sense, you know, like, again, we, we underestimate the power of writing because we think that writing as maybe talking about the past or even the present. But the truth is writing is about the future. And, and, the, and, and despite what the Bible is, is it, it is a time traveling device. It has unfortunately continued to travel through time <laughs> and be replicated by those. And will continue to for a long time unless we, something really drastic happens. And... Mm -hmm it will continue to shape the future. The only way that we can fight it is to make a much better story and a much better future. Yes, I agree. I think, yeah, Those better stories, better future. Yeah.
Yeah. That's no, how we save the, the world, the... Catherine. We save the yes. world with some fucking stories. That's right. So let's get writing. All right. Uh, I, I'll take that challenge. <laughs> and, <laughs> when, and when you finish your second book, uh, however long that is, then we'll uh, we'll have you on, on, on to discuss it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to reading it. Is there a name or is it still kind of like on the desk? It's oh, still a work in progress. I do know this, that I it's going to be more story, as in more novel than than memoir. Um, so it's, but it is going to be telling a story that is closely entwined or in step with my own, well, but I, but it won't be me. It'll be, it'll be, uh, a uh, character. It'll be a uh, Karen. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it, I, I think it will be a novel, um, just because that's where I'm going with it right now. That's where it seems to be going. And so, and that's the story that seems to want well, to be told. Well, it's tidy. You mean, you, it's tidier. You, yeah. real life is a little bit messy. You can't always get your point across. And it's sometimes yeah. you're just like, Jesus Christ, my whole narrative is confused. That's how I feel about it. Well, my- and also there's lots of, uh, you know, things left hanging in real life that oh. get are unresolved. And, and people who read books like to have some sort of resolution. Um, and it's easier to do that with characters than it is with your own self. Yeah. Yeah. So. What was, what, how, like, how did his story end? Oh, uh, he, he fell out of bed and hit his head and died. Yes. <laughs> the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Life so, is glorious. That's the problem. That's why we don't really, you know, even reality shows are a lie. We have to just make it all up. We do. We really, we really do. Like mo- uh, we, we are constantly informing what we see by, I guess, our own needs and wants, which is something that you know, um, I think I spelled out pretty clearly in the prologue of the book. Um, you know, where I talked about how much of what you need is what you put into the faith or into your faith or into your religion and that you're constantly, you know, manufacturing it. Well, so, well maybe, maybe really consciousness is merely just a maintained narrative we keep to ourselves, you know, a story we keep going. And mm-hmm. it's those sad people that sometimes lose grip of that story. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we feel sad about those. But I guess... I guess the story is never complete until it's it's unsatisfyingly over. <laughs> unsatisfyingly over, yes. Yeah, like this you. episode, like this show, we shall be unsatisfyingly over. We have no answers for you, dear people. All we have for you to do is, all we can say is wait, and we'll give you some more good stuff later. That's all we can do. Yes. Well, and you can also say, go buy my book. <laughs> yeah, I tried to say that myself on my show, and they never fucking listen, so... Go no. buy her well, book, buy, buy books. Uh, please keep reading, people, because, you know, how else are, are, you, are we supposed to create new work? Come on. Exactly. And also, you know, have a listen when the audio is available, because Richard does read the foreword. So. Well, we will definitely link to that on uh, when that happens. I'm, I'm assuming you probably don't have any hard dates on that either. I don't right now. I'm trying to finish by the end of March. Um, um, so I'm, I'm thinking probably uh, later spring, early summer. Okay, well, that's not so bad. I think that, yeah. uh, and, and for, most, for most people who listen, I would assume that they would probably prefer the audio version because mm-hmm. these, uh, these busy people, you know, exactly. all they've got time to do is, is listen to it in between their damn commutes. And that's it. If they invent teleporters, I'm out of fucking business. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. I've had a lot of fun. All right. Well, it was great having you on the show, and uh, I look forward to having you again. 
Thank you. So um, I'm uh, interesting discussion about the the Vatican and the bank and all that. Uh, that is my that's kind of like my that'll always coax me out of the closet to talk about religion. <laughs> well, I I wanted to find a way like you know because because that that podcast that I made on it is mm -hmm. like I wanted to make to write like not a book if you will but like a short essay mm -hmm. on on the Vatican's finances, but they're just impossible well, to make any sense. And I well, don't even start. They haven't even opened their archives, right? And, you know, someone like Gerald Posner spent nine years researching that book. Nine years. So, um, it's an, it's an, well, I mean, for me, it's more about like trying, cause to trying to, to, to describe it and lay it all out in, in much simpler terms, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm the, trying to be the voice of the people. I'm not trying to be overly academic in my approach. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, like, because for the most part, I really think that everybody just ignores all the financial sides. I mean, it's, it's why Ratzinger was, was removed. It's like, it, it's what everything that the Vatican does is really a matter of its financial policy and everything else. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, just, all, it's all know. motivated by its continued relevance and sustainability. That's not at all motivated. Like, that's the thing that pisses me off about the faith is that the the faith itself, the churches and the masses and the liturgy and the liturgical calendar, it's basic, it's propaganda, as you said. And it's, it's just meant to keep people in the pews and constantly contributing to its coffers. So... <laughs> But it seems to me like I don't know if this is just my observation, but after let's once it, it sort of like stopped being, you know, involved in any country like making decision after the dissolution of the papal states. Right. What was it? 1870, I think, or something. Mm -hmm. right. um, you know, from from the very moment it makes that agreement with Mussolini and, and gets that billion dollars and it becomes kind of a financial institution. Really, the from from what I see, the heart of the very organization changes. Mm -hmm. Um be and 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 ultimately i actually think that that is its its major weakness now its strength is its religion its weakness is its financial entanglements like it could not survive like a I, it real... wouldn't have its it wouldn't have its strength as you say its religious significance without its financial entanglements that that's the way that it sustains it if it didn't have like i agree with you because i mean when the when the Vatican decide when they when Italy decided to get rid of the lira and you know use the euro, that put the Vatican in a really horrible position, right? Mm -hmm. um, they they could either continue to use the lira and then everybody could see what they were doing, or they had to follow the way of Italy and go with the euro as their as their currency, right? So, like I mean, it put them in a they put them under a microscope, something that they didn't want 
to have happen. Um, and something that, you know, the, they continuously use that argument of religious liberty or religious freedom or, you know, um, the church can't just, you know, divulge all of its details because, you know, it's a faith. It's not just a country. <laughs> it's a faith. So I don't I don't know. I think um, the faith, I really do think the faith supports this insider trading, you know, backdoor deals, mafia-esque uh, mentality. Um, and it, that part kind of, for me, that angers me a lot because the, it's, it's this back and forth, this kind of weird dance that it does, you know, that these steps are taken on this side for, to encourage the faithful and these steps over here in the dark are to sustain, you know, the status quo. They want to keep going. They want to continue to be relevant, you know, and they use their ideology to make that happen. Well, it, it's kind of like from the very beginning, even their own structure seemed to really lead all all to towards towards basically the development of a religious corporation. Uh, yeah. I mean, they they tried it many different times, but this this particular time, I mean, like they're they're basically fulfilling a role that nobody else wants to fulfill. And like I said before with Durkham, I mean, like that the real problem is the need. For mm -hmm. all that money laundering, because I think in in a, in a certain sense, like the, you know, we talk about what its assets are, but at the same time that you have a lot of assets, you have a lot of costs, right? You have, yes. I mean, what's the maintenance costs on the fucking Vatican loan? I mean, <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sure it's, yeah, I'm sure it's insane. I really am. Well, most, uh, most, 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 most empires, do you know what really brings them down? It's their infrastructure. It's the costs yeah. of it. You cannot maintain. That's why most civilizations, they abandon their cities, move to new places because they can no longer maintain yeah. entropy. And we've never really found a good way to actually balance that out. So the, hmm. I, I, that's why I'm saying that the, really the church's financial structure, even though it seems more powerful, it's like that whole bigger they are, the harder they fall. I mean, if yeah. they weren't so entangled in all these world kind of finances, then – I would be a little bit more worried, but I think that really once the kind of like house of cards, the financial house of cards started crumbling, mm -hmm. uh, it would bring a lot of people down. And I mean, just look what happened with Banco Ambrosio and how many people just got offed yeah, just after yeah. that happened, just to try to clean up loose ends. And that's like yeah. guys that aren't even that high up, like Monsignors yeah. practically or whatever. We're we're talking here like, you know, like the large Jesuit order. Like yeah. how yeah. how powerful are the Jesuits really, like in the world as a as a weird pseudo organization? I well, I went to a Jesuit school, so I would say that I think that they have um an enormous amount of clout. Like intellectually they're they're the they're the priestly intellectuals the, the jesuits are the ones that are usually the huge scholars whether that be biblical scholarship or biology or astronomy right like they're they're usually the scholars within the vatican walls so i think that they're a really good public relations mechanism for the church mm. um so yeah i do think they're powerful well they have um, one of their banks also in um, yeah um that's like the 17th or 18th largest bank in the world or something like that yeah yeah no i mean um i don't know like mo most i most people are completely and totally oblivious to the intricacies you know mm. that sustain these organizations um, and they have no concept of the work, the the legwork that goes into, you know, making something happen. 
and it's an incredible amount of legwork. And I think that, I mean, the church wants to sustain that because they've invested 2,000 years, right? (laughs) We've been doing this for 2,000 years. Why would we want to give it up tomorrow, right? We, Mm -hmm. it's, it, they're as invested into it. I'm sure that there are priests that are in there that believe what they're saying. I'm sure there are priests that are in there that don't believe what they're saying um, and are there for other reasons because they would like a, you know, a free 2,000 square foot apartment in Rome, um, you know, so, and they need a place to put their bimbos. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> Actually, you know, what's funny though. I mean, like, tell me, tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but see when we, when we talk about like the strange puritanical sexual attitudes of, of even like of ancient culture, well, not ancient, but you know, of, of, of conservative culture. And even I would say our own culture, would you not say that the most sexually um, open uh, group was the Borgias? <laughs> um, probably, I, I would say. I Talk would about think... sexual revolution, huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would think that we are more evolved. Restrained? I know we're more evolved. We're not as we're not we're not that restrained as a culture. Like I would think that. Um, we're definitely um, not repressed. I don't feel like there's anybody in Canadian society that is repressed sexually, you know, like, like on a large scale, you might have priests or nuns or, you know, teenagers, um, or, you know, that sort of thing. But I, I wouldn't think that, I don't know, that sort of ideology, I think is, is much more apparent in say Pakistan <laughs> or, um, in, in the U S when it comes to, um, you know, women's bodies and how they are in control of their own bodies or in, let's see, Saudi Arabia, that's where that politic I think is, is more apparent or, you know, um, well, I, but I mean, it, it is to some extent, you know, within the, like the little micro. I was just, I, I was church. just kind of like amazed at, uh, the goings on, you know, like yeah, th- th- there's, there's definitely a lot of material there that because you know, we we talk about you know the the strategy to get people uh, yeah. you know off their uh, off their collective dicks and yeah. I would say that a really brutal honest expose on the history of the papacy in explained in uh, again non academic in some pretty fucking graphic way uh, yeah. would would go a long way we talk about propaganda. There needs to be some truthful propaganda about how the they've behaved. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah, like well, if, if it's not one criminal enterprise, it's like the next. It's crazy. Right, and I like I think I think the real stories would go a long way. Like I'm, um, um, Mary Johnson um, wrote this book called um, An Unquenchable Thirst. Um, and it, I think you would really like it because you like stories. Um, and, and in it, she talks about her experience being um, a missionary of charity, living and working with Mother Teresa for 20 years. And she tells, you know, she tells a story of her internal conflict and um, her uh, experience and her desire to do good things um, and uh, to listen to how God is calling her. But she also talks about, you know, um, the reality when you have a particular friendship um, with another nun and those types of things. A particular friendship is a code for 
um, sex. Love yes. <laughs> sex within the uh, within the, uh, the the confines of a convent, mm-hmm. um, and then also the relationships between priests and nuns, right? Mm. Um, and you know, just the the whole. Well, wasn't there a thing that came out about John Paul's like relationship with like this woman or whatever letters popping out? And yeah, I didn't read yeah. much of that. I haven't. I, I looked at it really briefly, but I've been really focused on trying to get things finished for the audio that I mm. did give it the time it looked like it needed. Sounded like my story. The same way I'm like, can you tell me? Oh, I'm gonna have to go read it now. <laughs> yeah. So Damn sorry, it. you're gonna have to go read it. But it just it looks like they just had a back and forth dialogue. She was living in the United States. He was in Rome. You know, he respected her because she was very. Um, traditional in her values and she was was basically just a sounding board for him to bounce ideas off of and stroke his ego i don't know if she stroked anything else but you know it does i, I maybe the occasional papal like dick pic we don't know i don't know but uh <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like there was anything going on and i'm i'm saying this as someone i lived with a priest in a in a, in a, a rectory for a year me and a priest. That was it. And nothing ever happened between me and a priest. Um, but I'm sure people were talking. So. <laughs> As people do. As people do. So, but yeah, so uh, I, I, I don't know if there's any, any clout to it. I mean, would it be nice to know that, you know, it would be nice to know that John Paul II what you know had sex with somebody that would be nice in the same way that it was you know slightly amusing that Saddam Hussein had tons of pornography <laughs> so, not Saddam Hussein um, what's his name uh, Bin Laden was found with tons of pornography when he was killed so you know it's it's slightly humorous you know uh, to see that the level that someone who's repressed still is a human being even well, though they I mean, it's continually been, it's deny that they are hotter like if i was repressed about watching porn i can't even imagine how hot it would be to watch me being <laughs> liberated about it boring i can watch anything i want fuck damn it damn it uh, why can't yeah. i be slightly more repressed <laughs> yes the repression goes a long way to uh you know, when when something's taboo, you auto, automatically make it more exciting. When nothing's taboo, it's like, oh, yawn. Yeah, but you know what? Again, we were talking about why are certain things illegal. I think there, <laughs> there are two reasons. One is because somebody need, may need something to do that's exciting that may not necessarily be that, quote, unquote, dangerous for society. Like hmm. the purchasing of a drug that might give you a bit of a rush. Like in any country where they legalize it, uh, consumption goes way down. Yeah. So, so there's that, but there's the second thing, which is, and this is probably the most important thing and, and not very talked about, is that in any society, you need some arbitrary way to jail people for very little reason. Yes. And, and, and jail people that you don't like, uh, yeah. jail people that you disagree with. And a drug is a really good way to do it. So look at any person who may be a social revolutionary and you may find them suddenly under a drug arrest. Yes. Yeah. So what well, would happen if you lost that little edge? What would you arrest them on? You would have very little. Yeah. So it serves that social function to keep that stability. So it's a pretty large reason why many drugs remain illegal and why most of those drugs are the ones that make you more interesting. I I guess so. I just, uh, I think that, you know, um, I I would hope that we would move away from that type of thinking. I, like, I'm really 
maybe I'm being naive, but I feel encouraged that, you know, um, when you have the Premier of Ontario and the Prime Minister talking about um, legalizing marijuana, that to me is really a hopeful thing. I'm like, I'm like, wow, yes, let's let's move in that direction. When when Kathleen Wynne said, oh, you know what? I think the LCBO would be the perfect place to uh, to sell uh, marijuana. They're already set up. We could just plug it in as a new product. No, no. The real reason why they're saying that is because the LCBO is a fucking trust. Or government trust, as is their beer stores and everything, and you're like, they're controlled by companies that basically arrange the prices. That's called a fucking trust. Yes. There's supposed to be laws against that, but apparently in Canada, we don't like competition. We don't, but we, we like regulation. True. We that, do. That's our compromise. That's no our compromise. No competition, but heavy regulation. <laughs> heavy regulation. And I mean, I don't know, I'm more happy with heavy regulation than I would be with no competition. You know, with competition, I think then you get then the market becomes really, um, I don't know, it becomes predatory Mm. because you're trying to undercut, you're trying to overthrow. Then you get like stupid shit happening, like a drive in liquor store. Well, drive in, you you, drive into the liquor store, get out of your car, buy your booth, get back in your car and drive out. I think you've basically kind of explained the American model versus the Canadian model in one yes. way, in yes. which we replace competition with regulation. We we came to a lot of breakthroughs today, Gavin. Yes, we did. We understand what the shit hell is going on with our world. <laughs> so on that note, I yeah. uh, have to get uh, um, doing other stuff and I can yeah, yeah. get the me kid too, in two too. hours. So um, It was too interesting talking to you, Gavin. You too. Um, let me know when it goes live and I will tweet. All right, we will do. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.